you know, as I said earlier, I'm a big fan of microenvironment and learning from the things around you. And I firmly believe that we cannot have diversity of thought without diversity of population. Are you working in research, trying to do the best science you can? Are you a team leader, a research assistant, postdoc, PhD student, or any other type of scientist? Are you looking for a place where you can sit, relax, and listen to inspiring people? Well, we have good news for you. You've just found what you're looking for. Hi, everybody. My name is Renaud Pourpre. And I am Jonathan Weitzman. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Lonely, Lonely Pipette. Helping scientists do better science. Shani Ratna. I study the biology of aging and melanoma at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center at Johns Hopkins. And I feel super excited to share my tips with the Lonely Pipette. So Ashani Tanuja Ratna, or we're going to call you Ashi, was born in Sri Lanka and raised in Lesotho in Southern Africa. Uh, due to apartheid, she left at the age of 17 to study biology at St. Mary's College of Maryland. She obtained a master's in philosophy from George Washington University and a doctorate in molecular and cellular oncology with Steve Spatianero at Columbian College of Arts and Sciences of the George Washington University Medical School. She was a postdoc fellow in experimental therapeutics and pharmacology at the John Hopkins Sydney Kimmel Comprehensive Cancer Center and then a staff scientist in the laboratory of Jeff Trent at the National Institutes of Health. In 2011, she became a professor at the Wistar Institute at the University of Pennsylvania. And in 2019, Ashi was named a Bloomberg Distinguished Professor of Cancer Biology and the McCollum Professor and Chair of the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. President Biden appointed her as a member of the National Cancer Advisory Board, which advises and assists the director of the National Cancer Institute. Her lab studies the molecular mechanisms related to melanoma metastasis, especially the Wnt signaling pathway. She is the author of the book, Is Cancer Inevitable? And she's also an activist campaigning actively against discrimination in science. She's a fierce champion of and a mentor for junior faculty, people of color, and women in science. Ashi, thanks for coming to share your tips with the Lonely Pipette. Thanks, Jonathan, and thanks, Renaud. I'm delighted to be here. It's a pleasure for us, and it's really an honor. Thank you again, Ashi, for being with us and giving us your, your time today. We have, I always had the feeling I'm always saying the same at the beginning, but this is something really, really, really important for us and our listeners. We have this question, this origin question. So we, we heard that you decided to become a cancer researcher at the age of 15. So can you tell us how you decided to become a scientist? Sure. So actually, it was probably a little bit older at the age of 16, not 15. <laughs> but, you know, I was always fascinated by biology. So one of the first uh, experiments I remember doing was in Africa. We had a high school uh, project where we had to go out, dig around in the dirt, bring some dirt back, throw it in a Petri dish, and then watch life evolve in that Petri dish over time. And it was so fascinating and recording, you know, the different life forms that were arising and thinking about how they got to be there. Like, how were they in that dish? Were they there in the dirt and then they hatched? 
you know, was there a fly flying in from somewhere else? Uh, how was that happening? And so I found that to be really fascinating. And at the time, you know, my sister is eight years older than I am. And so on the weekends, I would make her drive me to school to like, you know, chart the progress of these amoeba and whatnot that were <laughs> developing. And they all smelled so bad because there was grass, you know, in these cultures. And she would say, oh, you're festering hay culture. <laughs> right? And she would complain bitterly every time, but she would do it anyway. And so to this day, it's kind of funny because when she calls, she'll be like, how are the festering hay culture? <laughs> you know? And hasn't quite gotten past the fact that that's not really what I do, even though obviously she knows that. <laughs> Um, but so that's where my love for bio began. And that was, I was probably only 12 at that point. Um, but then a little later in life, I had actually danced ballet for a very long time. And I was very close to my dance teacher who developed colon cancer. And that's sort of where my interest in cancer research started to bud. And then, um, I came to St. Mary's for college. And there I did a couple of internships that were in, you know, molecular biology labs. And then afterwards, I spent two years at Hopkins as a technician in an oncology lab. And that's really where I decided that's, you know, what I want to do for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. If you hadn't become a scientist, what do you think you would have been? I think a kindergarten teacher. <laughs> I love oh, kids. <laughs> and I find that age a lot of fun. So, yeah. Nice. Are you are you doing a lot of teaching uh, around your work? No, I, I with all of the administrative commitments I have as chair and program leader in the cancer center, I don't really have time for a lot of teaching. Mm -hmm. I teach mm -hmm. lectures now and then um, for different courses, but I don't have time to commit to a whole course. So, so can you think of a moment you can you considered uh, leaving? Oh school? yes. <laughs> <laughs> So, Is there one particular you want to, to share yeah, with us? Yeah, <laughs> so I have to tell you, it's not necessarily a moment that I considered leaving of my own will, but a moment where I couldn't see a way forward. And that was, it was uh, during my time at an institute, I won't name names, not the Wistar, <laughs> which by the way, Jonathan, I must say, because I'll get in trouble if I don't bring that up. It is not actually a part of University of Pennsylvania. It's an ah. entirely separate institute. So it's I will on make the campus, that point. Right? Yes, it is on okay. the campus. <laughs> But I will say that I was working at a place that was a not a very conducive place um, for young scientists or women of color. And I was somewhat protected by the person who was in charge at the time. And then that person left. And the person for whom I worked directly sort of called me in and said, you know, by the way, your lab is going to, you can tell all your people to find new places and you're going to essentially be my glorified technician. And that was really, you know, for me, I, I didn't know how I was going to recover from that. Um, and I didn't know how I was going to move forward from that. And I look back and that was only 10 years ago, you know, it was right before I came to the West star and, you know, I have a lot of, um, fondness for the Wistar in my heart, because I feel like it was really a second chance for me and a chance to sort of grow and develop as a scientist. So at that moment, what, what kept you going during this difficult time? Um, What's... So my love of the science, I think, has always been a driving factor, no matter how tough things have been. I've been in situations where, you know, I was a trainee in a lab where I was told that women and should not really aspire to be PIs, that, you know, maybe they were better off being Uh, postdocs or technicians. 
certainly along the way, I've been told things like, you know, you shouldn't really bother going to grad school, which fair enough, my grades were pretty terrible in college. <laughs> so <laughs> I can't blame those professors. <laughs> but, you know, and I think, you know, my always joke with my husband, he always says you're stubborn. And I always say, I know you think that's an insult, but it's actually a compliment. <laughs> So I am persistent, if nothing else, and my love of the science has always driven me. So so we're going to come back to these issues of equality. But first, we'd like to talk more a little bit more about, about your own lab. How, how have you chosen the subjects that you work on in your lab? Ah, that's a great question. I feel like they've almost come to me along the way. So um, very e- the very easy answer to the first decade of the lab was, you know, I had left Hopkins and I joined the NHGRI with Jeff Trent. And it was a super exciting time. And Jeff is, you know, one of the best mentors I've ever had. And um, when I joined his lab, they had just sequenced the human genome. So you'd walk off the elevator and there would be, you know, these like new celebrities who were there to interview him and Francis Collins. (laughs) And it was such an exciting time. But when I got to Jeff's lab, um, he had a project that he needed a cell biologist for because his lab was largely these absolutely brilliant computational biologists, geneticists, you know, and he didn't have anyone who did cell biology. And he said to me, I'd like you to work on this project. It's a melanoma. It's based in melanoma and it involves this gene that we've discovered called that seems to have some relationship to resistance to therapy called WINT5A. And I was like, oh, fine, you know, (laughs) Uh, I'll do that. But, you know, we'll do this one project and then I'm moving on. And so, you know, now what is it? 20 years later, here I am. (laughs) That was a trap. (laughs) Yeah, it was indeed. (laughs) We still laugh about it every day. You know, I started on that project and it was just so fascinating because it was, you know, a a WINT ligand, but did not activate beta catenin and it was it played such interesting roles and continues to do so to this day. So um, and then maybe a decade later, being at the National Institute on Aging, I was, you know, sort of surrounded by those ideas of things change as we age and cancer, of course, although at the at the time at the National Institute of Aging, you couldn't say that you were working on cancer. <laughs> But it became more and more abundantly clear that cancer really is a disease of aging, right? So we um, started to think about what is changing as we age, how does that impact human progression? And although I didn't really get stuck into that work till I was at Wistar, um, certainly the genesis of those ideas came from, you know, brilliant colleagues around me at NIA. Yeah, so it's like the, what I hear from that, it's it's because there is also an underlying question. It's like, if you meet tomorrow a young scientist that asks how how they can look for their own question, research and everything, what could you give to them with all your experience? In- so I will say two things. So the great Bert Vogelstein once told me that the most important thing to do is to read voraciously, uh, read the literature, understand the literature be engaged with the literature. I think that is absolutely true. I certainly don't do enough of that myself, (laughs) um, again, because of time. In a way, Twitter has been a great resource for that, right? Because interesting papers come to your attention without you having to necessarily troll through PubMed. So that's number one. And number two, I'm a great believer, obviously, in microenvironment. And so I think learning from what's going on around you, for me personally, that really has shaped my entire career because I was able to pay attention to what was happening around me. 
So what are mentoring practices that you use um, that have had a pa- an impact on, on the way you run your lab? Um, I think for me, you know, everyone who comes into my lab, I sort of sit them down and I say, you know, everyone chooses their own path, right? And so obviously the conversation is slightly different for PhD students than postdocs. Um, for postdocs, I tell them this is your four or five years to discover what it is you want to be, who you are, what you want to study. And by that, I genuinely mean um, anything, right? I'm not someone who expects you to come into my lab and go be a PI. Mm -hmm. I think that there are many, many valuable jobs in science from communication to business development to industry to academia and so on. In a way, I've watched my own husband go through those different evolutions from being, you know, the person who discovered beta catenin mutations in the Vogelstein lab to running his own successful lab at the NIH for many, many years, and then going on to become scientific director at the AACR, for example. So he's had, you know, a very, very journey. And so for me, I think everyone needs to choose their own path, right? Writing grants, manuscripts being constantly rejected. It's not for everyone, <laughs> um, but sure. at the and there are a lot of valuable other careers out there. So I've had postdocs who've done internships in businesses or, you know, gotten teaching certificates or, you know, other things while also doing their lab stuff. You know, it's a little disappointing that you get punished for being that open, right? Because (laughs) certainly um, the federal government, when people are reviewing your training grants, they say, well, you know, she hasn't pumped out that many PIs out of her lab. Well, that's because I don't force everyone to take that path, right? And I encourage them to explore and have different paths if they want to. And they're all successful, but um, it does hurt me on training grant. So so where does, where do you, does your mentoring uh, philosophy come from? Does it come from your own mentors? So most of my own mentors were very much, um, you know, I'm trying to think of the <laughs> proper answer to that question. I think most most of the mentors <laughs> I have, have been horrible, because... and that's why you you learned to. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh no, I've been I've been so lucky actually. Um, but I think most of the mentors I've had never really had to say to me, "Be a PI," right? So it, it's a little different because each person has a different experience. And for me, I always knew this was what I wanted to do, so I never sought that type of mentoring out. I think my mentoring style comes from watching friends and family go through their own struggles with who they want to be ultimately. So, 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 and, and they are not specifically scientists. This is also what you, you mean by that? Yes. Yes. Right. But also, you know, I'll be honest and Jonathan, and I'm sure I know for you too, but I mean, at this stage in your life, most of your friends do what you do, right? <laughs> so, because the rest of them just can't understand. You only you talk to, to scientists. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> no, that's not entirely true. But <laughs> most of them have lost patience with you long before now. <laughs> have you ever seen or what do you consider uh, bad as bad mentoring uh, practices? To you? I think mentoring practices that are self-serving um, are bad, right? So for me... My mentoring practices are focused on my trainees. What is right for the trainee? What do I need? And, you know, and that has evolved with time. Obviously, when you start your lab, it's sort of like being on a plane with an oxygen mask. You need to put it on yourself first. Um, But as you get more and more senior, it should be all about the trainee, right? What is good for them? What do they need for their career? 
Because you reach a point where if you don't publish another paper, does it really impact you? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, yeah, probably it does. But you know what I mean? (laughs) You know, you certainly want. I I think for me, a, a bad mentor is someone who considers their needs before the needs of their trainees. In that way, so when do you think, at what age you, you started, you think, mentoring? Because at a mm-hmm. moment when you feel like, okay, that's the moment I should flip the coin, start to care more about publication of others. and Yeah, I think I was lucky in, I'm not sure I would have thought I was lucky at the time. And in fact, I did complain bitterly <laughs> at the time. <laughs> um, but my grad school advisor, Steve Paterno, who is now Deputy Cancer Center at D- Director at Duke, he, when I went into the lab, um, I kind of was, thro- I went to the lab and within a year or two, his more senior people had all graduated. So by the time I was a first or second year grad student, I was doing a lot of, you know, mentoring and high school students, undergrads, oncology fellows. <laughs> and, um, and I love, like, it's, I discovered that I love doing it, but I would always complain to Steve and say, it's taking me twice as long and I'm here twice as late, <laughs> you know? And he said, well, he's like, you know, some people, I remember him saying, some people you have to give them a walking stick and others, you know, you know, they can jump the hurdles by themselves. <laughs> Which at the time I was like, I'm not sure I love that. But in retrospect, you know, if Steve had not given me that independence and, you know, really helped me develop those people skills and training skills, I think I would not be as well off as I am today. How should a young scientist go uh, about finding a mentor? Because it's it's a question we always uh, look for because it's uh, for us, it's there is no one answer, but... uh, I'm not sure how interesting my thoughts are on that. You know, I think it's very important. If I was looking for a lab as a PhD student or a postdoc, you know, I would find the science that excites me. um, But I would also find the mentors that are, you know, are known not to be abusive, obviously, and good mentors. And what the way I would do that is to talk to the people in their lab privately, like one on one, because It is amazing to me, um, you know, when I was interviewing for postdocs, I actually had someone say to me, don't come here, run. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't go to that lab. (laughs) And I think uh, maybe a few of us have experienced that. Um, But I would definitely talk to the people within the lab, see what their thoughts are. Um, As a PhD student, I would look and see how long it takes people to graduate from those labs, what their publication records are like. Um, just some of the practical things, postdocs too, it's important to see, you know, what postdocs are publishing. And that's not always dependent on the PI. Obviously, you know, a PI can mentor multiple different people and the outcomes will be different for different people, depending on their engagement and their level of uh, interest. So you've often raised uh, your voice about about racism and gender uh, inequality in science. Have these affected your own career? Yeah, of course. Um, You know, I again, I grew up in apartheid, Southern Africa. So I grew up in Lesotho, which was technically politically independent. But everything we did involved going across the border to South Africa, whether it was for my ballet classes or to go to a mall or uh, as people of color, my family certainly experienced a lot of discrimination. So um, one 
funny, not funny story is my brother is married to was married to a Scottish woman and um, they decided to get married in Lesotho and they went on honeymoon to Sun City in South Africa. And she made all the arrangements in her maiden name without thinking twice. And they got to the hotel and the guy looked at my brother, who is by the way, one of the, my family tends to be, is, is one of the few like six foot plus families in Sri Lanka. And he, she looked, he, the guy looked at my, you know, six foot brother with shoulders almost as wide as he is tall and said, you can leave the bags there, sir. And he said, well, no, I'm taking them to my room. And they said, no, you can't stay here. And so she had booked them at a hotel that wouldn't allow them to stay together because their marriage was still considered illegal. And that's just one of millions of incidents. So growing up, of course, apartheid was a looming feature in my life. And when I came to the States, I had this sort of idealistic vision of the great melting pot that had been presented to us and no more apartheid, no more racism, no Mm -hmm. more discrimination. And then seeing especially as I progressed. And interestingly, as I progressed more and more up the rungs of the ladder, it became more and more apparent that, you know, you don't have the same seat at the table. Your voice is not as heard. And I'm actually not a very, you're going to laugh when I say this, but I'm actually not a very extroverted person by nature. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I had to really learn to be that in order to sort of have a voice at the table, get a seat at the table. Mm-hmm. Do you think it was it's it's more as a woman or a person of color or it's just the combination? I think sometimes it was one, sometimes it was the other, yeah. and sometimes it was both. Um, I do think that for me per se, it was probably more just being a woman, especially in some instances, but I, it's hard to tell, right? It's hard to separate. I am both of those things, yeah. so <laughs> it's hard to separate. Yes. When when it's one and when it's the other. In in season one, we 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 talk we quickly talked about the power of diversity in research, and we we know we have read that you you write about that, and you, you have some some thoughts about this. So, what are your thoughts about this diversity? What it can brings to research? Sure. So I think that you know um, again, as I said earlier, I'm a big fan of microenvironment and learning from the things around you. And I firmly believe that we cannot have diversity of thought mm-hmm. without diversity of population, right? Because your experiences are completely different from my experiences. You know, my husband is French Canadian, and we often talk about how we can be in the same room at the same time and have completely different experiences <laughs> or meet with the same people and have completely different experiences. But knowing that, you know, a situation or a person behaves in one way or the other, that's important. It's like knowing that a tumor cell is going to behave one way in one environment and another way when faced in a, with a different environment. And I think that until you understand those diversity of, you know, spaces, you cannot really fully appreciate diversity of what's going on even within like a tumor ecosystem, for example. So, so, so you wrote a recent um, uh, opinion piece where, where you argued for the importance of immigrants, the contribution of immigrants, mm-hmm. which, which I feel maybe goes beyond diversity. Yes. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there's something, so I'm an immigrant, there's something about being ripped from your, from your own culture, which frees you up intellectually to, to, to be able to make, step out of the box, as it were, to, to think differently from others and how important that is for, the, for scientific creativity. 
Yeah, I think you just put it absolutely perfectly, right? I think that, you know, when we're taken away from the things we know and we're put in an environment where we have to relearn everything from social norms. I remember my first week at college, um, I was in a dorm and all the girls would gather in the hallway outside, like everyone would go outside their room, sit and chat. And me having been raised in, and Jonathan, you'll relate to this, a rather stiff British culture, never left the room because I didn't want to interrupt them and no one had actually invited me, right? And so then one of the girls said to me, why do you never join our hallway chats? And I said, oh, I didn't know I could because nobody invited me. And she was like, oh my God, you know? <laughs> and so... I do think that learning to think differently, being ripped from somewhere, put somewhere new, gives you a whole new perspective, right? And as a person, it allows you to think in different ways. And I think by learning to think in different ways, it helps you to have a more creative approach to science. So we agree that there are some some benefits of, of that experience, yeah. <laughs> but, but it, it can also be very painful. Uh, to be a victim of harassment or discrimination. Something that's really on my mind, particularly this week, because I am about to be interviewed on French radio about this question. What, <laughs> what, what can we do in practical terms to improve inclusivity in research and, and to fight against discrimination in the lab? So, you know, I do think awareness is absolutely critical. What you're doing here is really important. I actually wrote a piece with my good friend, Danita Brady at Penn, um, who your brother obviously knows well, on exactly this, specifically geared towards cancer research. But there are so many great resources out there. I think being engaged, bringing people together to try to understand, it's delicate and something I've found, I've been doing this now for many, many, many years, right? In a way, the murder of George Floyd, I felt like I was screaming into the wind for a long time and suddenly the wind stopped and everyone was listening and I almost lost my voice for a while because right? it was like, oh, wait, what? <laughs> um, and so in a way, some of the good that came out of the horrible murder of George Floyd was the fact that people said, well, wait a minute, we do need to listen. And this does apply to not just to cops pulling over Black people on the street. It applies to our academic spaces as well. And I think that just that awareness, that intentional trying to fix some of the systemic racism in academia mm -hmm. has, you know, things maybe are not improving as fast as we would like, but they are improving. And I think that's been so critical. What are your thoughts about bullying? Um, so I, and you, you know, that there are many high high profile cases. I won't name any of them, but but we, but we've seen people who 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 rise to to very high positions in academia, who are known bullies and who continue to have bullying behavior. What can we do to to stop this and to change the culture? I will never understand. The one thing I will never understand is how in science, you know, someone can be a bully, someone can be a harasser. And maybe they'll be let go from whatever institute they're at. But then you see them again two years later in a high position, either at another institute or another, you know, and there should be no place for that. Um, I tell everyone from my daughter to my trainees that one of the most important traits you can have is kindness. And I think for me, one of the biggest moments of pride was when I, an immigrant, <laughs> right, to this country and a woman of color had the deep, deep honor of being appointed by President Biden to this board. And the moment of pride for me was when I told my mom and she burst into tears and she said, I'm so proud of you because you did all of this without ever losing who you are. 
And, you know, she's, and that just made me so happy. Mm. I think that there is such an inherent value to people being kind. And I honestly, you asked me, what do I think of the bullying? I have no tolerance for it. <laughs> and I have, I think there's no place for it in science. So I had a question in, in, in my mind because you, previously you said that you were not a, Uh, an extrovert, really social, I don't know what you mean by <laughs> that, but uh, you f you've, at the end, you, you, you found a way to, to, to lead some action or, or initiative to, to raise this awareness. We, uh, with Jonathan, Jonathan and I, we are concerned about this because we really think that listening is really important. And actually, I've learned that from Jonathan as my mentor. How can we help all those people that are not extroverts, but they suffer from this They don't know how to go, how to raise this voice, and how can we give them this first step to start something? Do you have any... I mean, I think in a way you're already doing it by having a podcast like this, where, you know, you engage people on these issues and how important they are. Um, this is going to sound a little nuts, but I think social media has been a great equalizer, right? It gives people voices, all the negative things we can say about Twitter, and there are many. Um, it has <laughs> given people voices and raised awareness on multiple different levels. So I do think that there are ways such as that. And I think maybe with this podcast, I don't know whether you invite students on or people whose voices are lesser known, but it might be a way to have at least a symposium or something like that, where you do reach out to students of color around the world and see what their different experiences are. I'm sure our students' experiences in the States are not the same as yours in France, for example. Do you think that in, in, I don't know, we should introduce in conferences this kind of part of time we, when, when we talk about uh, inclusivity, diversity, and how our thoughts can mix <laughs> the culture? So you're asking uh, the wrong person because <laughs> 15 years ago, I instituted at our national melanoma conference um, a session on gender equity, which evolved to become a session on equity in general. And it was really funny because the first year, I remember there were like 15 of us women huddled in a corner saying, oh, this sucks. <laughs> and then by our last in-person meeting, almost everyone at the meeting attended. And it was a lively discussion of, you know, what can we do? What are the things we can change? Um, this past year, the conference was, vir was virtual, but we had an amazing diversity session and Utubi Aysen, if you ever can get him on your podcast, he's amazing. He came in and he gave a great, um, he gave a great talk. And then we had sort of, we did a survey of the melanoma community. Um, and we asked a bunch of questions about diversity and inclusion and, you know, what people have experienced. And so we presented those data and that was really fascinating. You know, I think that yes, every conference should do this. <laughs> Um, we make ours a plenary session. It's been a plenary session now for the last seven years. Uh, it's not just an aside. To what extent do you think you're preaching to the converted? Uh, what about um, the, you know, the, resist, <laughs> the resistors um, who are out so there? I would How love do we get to, them? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I would love to tell you that I am preaching to the converted. However, what I will say is when we did this survey of our community, which was the first time, and I always think of our melanoma community as just one of the most accepting, tolerant, everyone collaborates beautifully. It's such a great community to be a part of. However, I will tell you that one of the questions, you know, we asked in the other comments, someone wrote, listen, we've been addressing this stuff in our melanoma meeting forever. There's no problem anymore. Move on. <laughs> right? 
And I was like, are you kidding me? Because if you looked at the other responses, people were like, I'm still having this problem and I still can't do this. And I'd love to see this address, you know. And so it was important to put those comments up there and say, hey, there are still problems and we, we, we still have a long way to go. I run a women in science workshop and I always start by, I'm the only man there, but I always start by saying, I'm looking forward to the day when we don't need women in science workshops. Yeah, no, no. Yes. Um, Actually, that's, you know, my good friend, Richard Murray, who's at the CRUK in Manchester, he says all the time, he's like, it's 2020 or it's 2022. Why, why do we still have to do this? You know, and not in a negative way. He's saying, I wish we didn't have to do this anymore, but yet we still do, right? Okay, this has been great. So we're going to take a break. And then after the break, we're going to hear more about Ashley um, outside of the lab. Hey, folks, don't run away. You're listening to The Lonely Piper with Rono Pourpre and Jonathan Weissman, where our goal is to help scientists do better science. If you're enjoying the show and you want to learn more, you can follow us on Twitter at Lonely Pipette. And please share the podcast with your friends. If you don't want to miss any of our future episodes, you can subscribe to our mailing list and join our community. Click on the subscription link on our Twitter account. It's as simple as that. Take a few moments to get more tips from the Lonely Pipette. Welcome back. You're listening to the Lonely Pipette. In the second half, we'd like to hear more about your life outside of the lab. So um, you have this, you've, you've risen from apartheid Africa to this very high profile management director position. So uh, do you have a morning routine? What does the day look like for you? How does it start? <laughs> Every day is so different because I live my life in two different cities. I am in Baltimore uh, for much of the week. I have a 17-year-old daughter. And she, um, so morning routines are, you know, getting up, getting her breakfast together um, and her lunch for school. And when the days I'm not here, she's, you know, set for the days that I'm not here as well. But yeah, every day is different. I'm either catching a train or packing a kid's lunch or <laughs> juggling one or the other. So your lab is in Baltimore. Correct. But your house, your, your home is in Philadelphia. Philadelphia. I do have a small apartment in Baltimore as well. So, and so you, go, you the... go back and forth every week. Yeah, wow, that's I do. Where is life crazier in Philadelphia or in Baltimore? Definitely Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> in Baltimore, it's just me to think about. I tend to go to work in the morning and then suddenly go, oh my God, it's 7.30 or 8. I should go home now. <laughs> so, you know, I just, it's a very concentrated life in Baltimore. Um, and I can just, you know, eat a yogurt and cereal if I want. And whereas at home, I'm the cook. So, <laughs> so how, how did you set the time you were spending in both cities? Is it something that you, you didn't choose or did you really calculate the time that you have to, to do in both? I think that, you know, in, in a weird way, the pandemic made it easier by putting everything on Zoom. It allowed me to be more regulated about the time I can spend in one place or the other. I'm curious to see what will happen as things return to in person, because it, it was a little bit challenging when I first started. I only had a few months before the pandemic hit. But when I first started, there were some meetings I absolutely had to be there for on a day that I didn't necessarily intend to be there. So, for example, I don't love to travel on Fridays because it's a zoo. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but then every now and then I would have to go to a meeting on a Friday and be there in person. What is something about yourself that people would be surprised to discover? I don't know. I'm a pretty open book. 
<laughs> Maybe the fact that, you know, if you'd look at me, you'd be very surprised to know I danced ballet for 17 years. Maybe that's, maybe that's the only thing. <laughs> Why did you stop? Um, I stopped because I realized that I would not, you know, I was at the point where I would have to pick either being a teacher or an actual dancer dancer. I absolutely did not have the body type to do the one. And I realized that my love of science was greater than my love of dance. And also I have a South Asian mother who said, absolutely, you will not be a dancer. <laughs> so, Well, there is something called, and I know Jonathan know it well, uh, <laughs> dance your PhD. I yes, don't know if this is I know, thing. I keep trying to persuade my students to do that. I'm like, one day we're going to have a Bollywood PhD, <laughs> but no, nobody will do it with me. <laughs> Call us, we come. <laughs> I actually did a, 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 a mod, um, like a, a workshop for the graduate school, uh, which was, mm -hmm. we called it Dance Your PhD. It was all about choreography and, and movement oh, cool. for graduate students. Uh -huh. It was amazing. It was amazing. Oh experience. my God, yeah. that's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what is a, an unusual habit uh, or an absurd thing that you love? I, well, it's probably not unusual, but I absolutely love to cook. And for me, it's my stress release. And so, for example, this weekend, it was a friend of mine's birthday. And we said, you know, I said to him, if you could have anything you want to eat. And he goes, I love peanuts and coconut. I was like, fine, I'll make a full Thai <laughs> meal from like, and he was watching me because we were staying with them. And he was watching me and he's like, aren't you stressed out? I wish you'd come sit down. I'm like, you don't understand. Like, for me, this is such joy to make all of these okay. recipes I've never made from scratch. So. What's it, uh, because you've lived in lots of different countries, What what is your favorite culinary tradition? I love exploring, so I cook a lot of Sri Lankan food, um, but I also cook Italian food, Thai food. I have no favorite, I don't think. I love it all. Anything that's challenging, I like to do. <laughs> Are you in the steps sometimes to create your own recipe? Trying to... Always. <laughs> I never follow a recipe fully, which is kind of funny, right? Because as a scientist, I, I should be following the protocol. And it's why I'm actually a terrible baker, because baking requires you to follow the protocol. But cooking, you can be like, oh, you know what? I think that would taste good here. So I'm going to throw in a handful of that, right? So we've been talking about cooking a lot. So Rona's father is a um, teacher's cooking. So we've been we've been talking a lot about about cooking experiences and. and Reno, are you a good cook as well? Uh, so so I I think this is a question I ask because this is something that always, <laughs> every time I get to the lab I say so my, people ask me uh, what are what are you doing your parents so I say yeah my my father is a cook teacher so I say oh so you should be good at cooking and molecular <laughs> biology and everything I say it's fair enough to say that I was good in molecular biology I really loved that. Uh, <laughs> I had some terrible technique for IPs, uh, <laughs> but for the cooking, <laughs> it's a nightmare. It's a disaster. <laughs> so I just stopped doing that. And I said, you know what? I just leave the skill to my father and I just grab the other thing. <laughs> so can you, can you think of an activity outside of science that's impacted your work? Ooh, what a great question. I mean, definitely not to harp on the same horse, but um, definitely cooking, right? <laughs> In the sense that you learn to be creative and try different approaches and sometimes you make a mess and sometimes you make magic. So definitely cooking. I love to sail. We actually owned our own sailboat for many, many years. Wow. And that was also an important lesson, not just for science, but learning to raise my child. Because, and I think one of um, you know the pieces of advice I've taken from sailing is it's not about the course. It's about learning to tack with the wind 
Um, you know, so when the wind changes, sometimes you've got to take a different tack. And I think that's been really important for many of the experiments we've done. That's a nice, nice oh. metaphor. Yeah. Um, so, so you're living in two cities, you're running a lab directing, you've got your mother, a cook. Do you have any tips about how to balance that all out? <laughs> I think I just don't think about it too much. <laughs> <laughs> because I think if I thought about it, I might cry. Um, you know, I'm I'm lucky. I have a husband who is incredibly supportive and who's been there every step of the way, who at different times has put my own career ahead of his. Uh, so I know not everyone has that. Not everyone has a partner like that. And I'm super lucky. Um, I have a daughter who is now 17 and who's super independent. You know, we're very close, but she can also, I know that I can trust her to get from point A to B and through her day without any major crises. <laughs> Although you wouldn't necessarily know that from our text messages. <laughs> um, so I'm very lucky. I had the people around me are incredibly supportive. I have a great network of friends that help whenever, you know, when Alina was smaller, we had a lot of friends that we didn't have family here to help. We had friends who could. And how do you balance it in the lab between the administration and the science? So I meet with each of my PhD students once a week and each of my postdocs once every two weeks. And that keeps me grounded in terms of what are they doing in the lab? How are they doing both in and out of the lab? We have regular lab meetings. So I've never changed any of that. We're also really good about, you know, as the pandemic would let us getting together um, that in a way, that's sort of the nice thing about my time in Baltimore is I can have everyone over to the apartment for dinner or whatever on a more regular basis. Mm -hmm. So, so, so about the the meeting with the people, is it something that you set settle in, in your calendar? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so you almost have two lives, right? Yeah, <laughs> I do. It feels very. Uh, it, it feels very um, schizophrenic. Yeah. <laughs> schizophrenic <laughs> split. <laughs> yeah. But it's good, you know, because I feel like when I'm here, I focus on my family. When I'm there, I focus on my work. And, you know, my work, you're, as you know, your work never leaves you, right? This, this laptop is basically an extra appendage <laughs> <and half. laughs> for years. So. Yes. so outside of science, do you have a, an individual or celebrity that, that inspired you, your life? Yes, many. My dad was a huge inspiration for me. He was a very interesting man. He was the first Sri Lankan officer in the British Royal Air Force. And then we moved to Africa because of his work. And his work was to help countries deal with sort of the after effects of colonization. Oh. So, for example, you know, the British or the Portuguese or the French would come to Africa, colonize a country, build these systems that were really important for the country, like telecommunications or schools, or but they would staff it with their own people. So people from Britain, Portugal, France. And then when the colonists left, everybody would go back to their original countries and the systems would start to fall apart because nobody ever trained the people who lived in those countries how to run those different systems. And so that was my dad's job. He uh, worked with the embassies and USAID and the Canadian equivalent of USAID to do all of those things. You know, what I loved about my dad is he was a true socialist at heart. And he also believed that if you give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day. If you teach him to fish, he'll eat for a lifetime. <laughs> you know, I still have, he passed away 20 years ago, uh, very young. And I still have an award that he got, which was a hand holding a fish. And, um, you know, with that saying inscribed on it, because it really was one of his favorite things. So he's the one who taught me that no matter where you're from, no matter what your background is, we're all equal. 
and we all deserve the same opportunities. If you had 1,000, no, 100 million dollars yeah. to spend in science, but not on your experiments, mm-hmm. how would you spend them? That is a great question. So I would start with making sure that, you know, a hundred million dollars. Hmm. <laughs> That's very specific. So, yeah, it's very specific. And I'm trying to think strategically. If you could just draw us know, up an Excel file. Yes. <laughs> There's so many places I could spend that money in five minutes. Um, you know, I think that every university has a responsibility to recruit in a diverse body of scientists, right? And so the NIH has done this to some extent by introducing this first grant, which is to recruit up to 10 minority faculty per institute, and then provide them with coaching and executive leadership skills, et cetera, et cetera, to help to help produce. I'm a firm believer that representation matters. And until we have representation at different ranks of academia, we're not going to have true equity or equality. How, how, far, how far off do you think we are? Oh, I think we have. I mean, <laughs> you know, I'm probably less than 1% of chairs right? In the, in the sciences, in the life sciences. So we have a long way to go. And I don't think I realized how important that was until in a way, I mean, I knew it was important, but I cannot tell you how, when the Biden thing was announced, the outpouring of messages I got from young women and especially young women of color saying, now that we see this, it gives us inspiration to keep going because things are tough. Mm-hmm. I mean, that for me, the fact that I can say that without like breaking down in tears, it means so much. And I think that, you know, I would put all that money towards increasing representation mm-hmm. somehow. So, so in terms of women, I don't know what it's like in the States today, but in terms of women, uh, I think we moved, we, we are moving relatively fast in the right direction. My university, yeah. the president of my university is a woman. The head of my department is a woman. Most of the best students on my master's program are women. Um, so so at all levels, we are increasing female participation in science, even though we're not completely there. But I think I do feel that we're moving in the right direction. Color may be more complicated. Yeah, I think that is true. But if you look at the statistics, we're still very far behind at the leadership levels, right? right? So yes, I would say, you know, our incoming graduate applicants even like let alone the incoming classes incoming applicants are overwhelmingly women but if you still look at the statistics we're still looking at about 20 percent of full professors are women mm-hmm. and far fewer are women of color so and that's just full professors that's not talking about deans or chairs or presidents of universities okay so if, i want to ask uh, the the question on, on another the other way around if you okay. um can you think of a something that you, a time that you spent less than a hundred dollars that impacted your life? That impacted my life or the life of someone else? Well, either way, a hundred dollar expense that was definitely worthwhile. I mean, there's so many times I've spent nothing and gotten so much out of it, right? Whether it was a simple email reaching out to someone I admired or vice versa, responding to an email where someone reached out to me. So there's hundreds of those moments. Um, I can't think of any one specific. I, I think for me, maybe the time when I met Mina Bissell <laughs> for the first time was someone I really have admired for a long time. You know, that was something where I reached out to her at a meeting and within 
a day we were like best friends. <laughs> so, <laughs> I can imagine that. <laughs> were, were, were you afraid to go toward this person? I mean, I was nervous, but I wouldn't say afraid. Yeah. You know, what was the worst they could say? No. And that's what I tell a lot of young people who are like, oh, how do we reach out, whether it's for postdocs or to someone we admire, say, you know, what's the worst that can happen? Someone doesn't respond to your email or they say no to a specific request and you're just right back where you are right now, which is, you know, that's okay too. <laughs> so uh, what is an achievement that you're particularly proud of, professional or non-professional? I was just going to say raising a daughter with, yeah. you know, successfully. <laughs> I think I have to say I'm pretty proud of that because I hadn't even been able to keep a plant alive before I had her. So, <laughs> so she would be my number one accomplishment. You have to talk to them. Yes. <laughs> the plants or the kids? <laughs> Both. That's my advice. Both. Well, I, yeah. I'm talking always to my plants and it's like cooking. It's not working here. <laughs> I yeah, don't know what. I was going to say, I don't think <laughs> Wait till you like have kids, I have Renaud. to say. <laughs> You'll realize how simple the plant was. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so true. I, I'm, I'm actually trying with cats nowadays. So I, I, I mean, maybe this is a step right before. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so do you, do you have a sentence written on your door? If, or if you could have put one sentence on your, do on your lab door, what would it be? <laughs> so I do have a sentence on my office door that my daughter wrote, uh, which says singing with friends make you makes you happy. Ah, uh, nice. <laughs> um, but um, I also have on my door something she wrote, and this is actually very pertinent and kind of fu sad, funny, I guess. <laughs> um, on my very first time presenting aims for a new R01 at Worcester. So Worcester was an interesting place because It was a lot of brilliant colleagues, but they would not hold back what they thought. If you were presenting a dumb idea, you got it with both barrels, right? <laughs> and But the difference, what was amazing is that someone would say to you, that's a terrible idea, but here are some models that I have that I'm happy to share with you that can help you, you know, refine that idea in this way. And so that is incredibly valuable, right? But anyway, my daughter was visiting. She must have been about seven at the time. And she was at a meeting with me where I received sort of a barrage of these criticisms. And she was just, I thought she was just playing on her iPad. But when I got back, and I can share it with you over email, she had written a list of things. And one of them was always be kind, because that's what matters most. And the other was If you have an idea that you think is great, then it's great. No matter what anyone else says, you know, keep at it. So, so just this like incredibly inspirational thing that I posted on Facebook, actually. And it kind and then later Twitter and it went viral <laughs> <laughs> and it was written by a seven or eight year old. It was pretty impressive. <laughs> um, so that's on my door at work, that list of things. And people often will stop and read it and say, oh, my God, what? <laughs> and then on the lab door, we have a little sign that says research cures cancer in rats. So that's on the lab door. <laughs> Not very profound. <laughs> Thank you for, for sharing this with us. Um, yeah, now can, can you think of a time when things didn't go as planned? We know that sometimes, I mean, most of the time there are stuff that doesn't go as planned, but can you have a specific or particular example you would like to share with us and how you, you did get back on track? I mean, I was going to say, what is it, Monday? So, <laughs> 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 But, um, you know, I think the incident I shared before where I had a lab, I was publishing, and then I was told that I had, you know, just 
out of no fault of my own, no, nothing, just completely out of the blue was told you need to shut it down and let all your people go um, because I say so. I think that for me was where things definitely, that was not the plan, right? And it was terrifying and disconcerting. And again, not anything I was producing. I was, it wasn't anything that you kind of saw saw coming. Like, you know, if you're going up for tenure and maybe you're not getting papers published and you're not getting grants, it's one thing. When everything is going amazingly well and something like that happens, it's a whole different story. Um, to get back on track, I had to take a step backwards. Um, but in the end, I was very lucky because, you know, that was only 10 years ago and here I am. Something I do say a lot, especially if there are young people who listen to this podcast, is you cannot tell what's coming, right? And sometimes it may feel like something is miles and miles away, but your journey is your journey. You really have to sort of have faith in the process as long as you're being true to yourself and you're, you know, enmeshed in the science if this is what you want to do. Have have a little faith in the journey. Yeah. So I really like this idea. I really believe that, yes, the journey is really important and everything. So so now that you you had quite a long journey, it's still not over, I know. But uh, <laughs> can you identify an apparent failure or a moment of really crash like that that at the end set you up? For, for the later success? I think that it's not necessarily a failure, but sort of a disabusement of a belief that I had. So I'll tell you about a particular project. So this is a scientific project where for many, many years we've been working on wind signaling and non-canonical wind signaling, specifically wind 5A. And in my mind, I had always just equated wind 5A with metastasis. But we have a new paper that hopefully will be coming out soon that has completely changed what we thought we knew, right? So it turns out that mm. when we put tumors in young and age mice, um, WIN5A drives that initial dissemination. But in the young mice, the WIN5A stays on and that allows the tumor cells to remain quiescent and in the slow cycling state and they don't grow out into overt metastases. However, in the age mice, there is a secreted protein called SFRP2 that shuts off WIN5A, I mean SFRP1, sorry, that shuts off WIN5A and allows the tumors to grow out rapidly. And so for the first time, I realized, oh my gosh, like having WIN5A is actually protecting these tumor cells from growing out. And now when we turn it off, they grow out like crazy and make these huge avert metastases. So I think that's one example of sort of being stuck in a set of beliefs that until the experiments proved us wrong, you know, um, but that turned out to be super exciting. Great. Have you, have you struggled with a particular fear during your career? And how have you overcome it? Oh my gosh, so many fears. Just one. So believe it or not, I don't like public speaking. No. I actually don't like doing podcasts <laughs> or being on radio Sorry, or being done. on TV. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, you know, I'm always afraid I'm going to say something really stupid <laughs> that's going to come back and bite me. <laughs> so yeah, I think this. This is my particular set of fears. Um, so how, how and, and why have you overcome it? I feel like I just haven't had a choice. <laughs> right? Like, I feel like, you know, I'll be honest, Jonathan, I did this because you asked me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, because this, this was the question. We didn't force you. So <laughs> no, no, why no, are you right. here? <laughs> so the, the other thing is I also find it hard to say no. So there's that. 
<laughs> um, but yeah, we're, we're very grateful for you to you. So I, yeah. I just we have oh, a, a question you. to wrap up. What advice would you give to yourself if you met yourself twenty years ago mm-hmm. at the beginning of your career? That it's all going to be okay. That <laughs> 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 it's going to be That's super that. stressful along the way, but it's going to be okay. <laughs> okay, this has been this has been great, Ashley. Yeah. Thank you very much for for all of the time. Course. So, so where can people find out more about you and your work? Well, there is the book that we wrote, and also my website. So, the book is called "Is Cancer Inevitable?" It's um, that's give- for the layperson. Yes. Um, and if you're a scientist who wants to know more about our work. And what's the answer? <laughs> the answer <laughs> to read is the book. yes, but hopefully we can control it. Yes, that's true. That's right. I'm terrible at this. You see? <laughs> I always say, if you can spell my last name, you can find our work. <laughs> um, well, we'll put all that on, on the show notes. Um, is there anything you'd like to add? Any closing remarks? No, I'm grateful for you guys for making this so fun and easy. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thanks for giving so much of your time, and thanks yeah. for uh, you know for for campaigning. Um, I, I hope that of the course. the culture changes quicker than than you think it will. I'm, I, I'm <laughs> optimistic, uh, and uh, I am too. And we uh, we're part of that campaign with you. Great, and thank you so much for what you're doing. One of the motivations for the podcast was to give lots yeah. of a platform to lots of different voices. I think that's so important. Thank you. Take care. So that's it for this episode. Thank you for joining us at The Lonely Pipet. We hope that you learned something new, that something resonated with your own experiences, or that you just enjoyed the science. Let us know your thoughts on Twitter at Lonely Pipet. And please, share it with your friends in the lab. If you want to join our community, you can subscribe to The Lonely Pipet mailing list or mail us by following the link available on our Twitter profile you will receive the next episodes directly in your mailbox. How cool is that? Stay tuned for the next show. And remember, you might feel like a lonely pipette, but it doesn't mean you're alone. Tips from the lonely pipette can help you to do better science. A bientôt. A bientôt.